The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. It's a very great delight to be with you this weekend, and a very great delight to bring God's Word to you this morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to two passages of Scripture. The first is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read a few verses, the last part of the chapter, and then we're going to turn over for our morning text to 1 Peter chapter 3. But first of all, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and as we go through the message, and especially as we come to the end, you will see the connection between this passage and the one that we are taking for our text. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. 2 Corinthians 5 from verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then over, please, to First Peter in chapter 3, and the opening part of verse 18. First Peter chapter 3, and the opening part of verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, I am conscious that if you are using an a New King James Version or an authorized version, that word suffered is rendered died, and there is a textual difference. But they come to the same thing. The focus is on the cross of Calvary and the death that Jesus died and all the suffering involved in that crucifixion. So. We're on the same page. We're thinking about the same thing, all, even although there's this slight difference in vocabulary. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Well, you turn on the news and you listen to it over the course of a week or a month. 
what are you going to hear about? One thing for sure is some breakdown in relations. You will hear about it happening. You will hear about the fallout. You will hear about efforts to try and fix things. You will hear about the failure of those efforts or perhaps success. Breakdowns in relations are big news, whether it is in our British royal family or a celebrity marriage or industry or politics or between nations. There is, however, a sad and disturbing silence when it comes to the biggest breakdown in relations of all, the one to which all other disputes and separations and the misery that they bring are to be traced, and that is the separation between God and man. That is the background to Peter's words here about the cross of Calvary. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There is a breach that has been made, and it needs to be healed. A separation that has come about, which needs to be ended. A reconciliation that needs to be affected. And the goal of Jesus' Calvary work is to make it happen. So what can we say about this breakdown in relations between God and ourselves? Three things, and then we will come to our text. In the first place, it is a breakdown for which we are entirely to blame so often, when there is a breakdown in relations among ourselves, the blame for it is a shared blame. He did this, she did that, and the whole thing falls apart. That's not how it is with a breakdown in relations with our Creator. The blame for that is entirely on one side, our side. When God made us at the very beginning, we enjoyed the closest of friendships with him. Our delight was in him. His delight was in us. However many there were, those first few days of created life for us, there was not a flicker of a shadow over our relationship with God. And then temptation came. And the sin of which we read in Genesis chapter 3, we did what we had been forbidden to do. And by that sin, we ruined the relationship. And by our sin, sins, we have kept the relationship in ruins. The sin that is ours through our connection with Adam, the sins of which we have been personally guilty they have made and kept us strangers to the kind of relationship with God that we enjoyed at the first. So there's the first thing, this breakdown in relations between God and ourselves, one for which we are entirely to blame. There's a second thing that we can say about it, and it is this, it has had the saddest consequences 
there are some relationships that are better broken. And it is a kindness when something happens that does break them. Not this one. For sheer tragedy, there is nothing to equal the breakdown in relations between our Creator and ourselves. I often think of Augustine's words addressing God. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. God made us for himself that we might know him, love him, worship him, serve him, and find our highest delight and deepest satisfaction in doing so. This breach in our relations has made that impossible. We cannot be what God made us to be. That is why there is a hunger in human hearts that nothing on earth can satisfy. That is why there is a thirst that nothing on earth can quench. It is why there is a restlessness in the human spirit that nothing on earth can still. It is why there is an emptiness that nothing on earth can fill. It is why there is a sense of guilt and fear that nothing on earth can appease. It has been called the homesickness of the soul for God. And there is nothing on earth that can cure that homesickness, nothing less than God. Our separation from our Creator is a tragedy. And if we die without our relationship getting fixed, it is a tragedy that will last forever. Do you know what hell is? Hell is the eternal loss of God. It is the forfeiture forever of the friendship that the God who made us for himself so that we can enjoy it. All the blessedness of knowing him eternally out of our grasp. So it's a breakdown in relations for which we are entirely to blame. It is a breakdown in relations which has had the saddest of consequences, but in the third place, and here we come into the light. It is a breakdown in relations with which God is eager to deal. It is he who is the offended party. He is the entirely innocent one. The guilt, the fault, the sin, all on one side, our side. And yet, how eager he is to repair the breach, to do what it takes to bring us to himself. It is he, for example, who takes the initiative, who makes the first move, Plans are drawn up in eternity before we're even made. A promise is given of a Savior at the very time of the fall. And in the fullness of time, God sends that Savior, his own beloved Son. He doesn't wait for us to repent. It is he who takes the initiative. 
and most humblingly of all, it is he who bears the cost. To end the separation between himself and us, <laughs> it is no cheap and easy matter. No mere matter of willing, of speaking. That will do for creation. He speaks, and it comes to be. Reconciliation is an entirely different matter. There is a cost involved, a cost to God. And the proof of that is Calvary. Let's put what is last in our text first. That Christ might bring us to God. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You see how eager God is to heal the breach? Left to ourselves, we would go on without him to the end. But we're not left to ourselves. There is this intervention in amazing grace to bring us back to himself. And at the heart of that intervention, the cross of Calvary. Well, our task this morning for a little is to visit the cross of Calvary and to look at it through Peter's eyes. What is happening? Had you asked Peter that at the time, what's happening, he would not have been able to give you an answer. At the time it was happening, everything was dark for the apostle Peter. But now that Christ has risen from the dead and has returned to heaven and has poured out the Holy Spirit, Peter is able to tell us. It's one of the great statements in the New Testament on the cross of Calvary. Christ is suffering for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And the reason? To bring us to God, to heal the breach. I'm going to ask three questions, and then we'll have some applications at the end. Here's the first one. For whose sins was Christ suffering? I think, and it's a very, very solemn thing to think about. I think about someone dying after a life without God. Follow their spirit into the eternal world. To what kind of place does that spirit go? To a place of suffering. Think about the person as a whole. Christ has now come. He or she has been raised from the dead. They have stood before God, body and soul together. They've been ordered to depart into what kind of place? A place of suffering. Suffering for what? For sins. The sins of which they were guilty in the course of their life. The sins of which they have continued to be guilty since the moment of death. It is the one reason for their suffering. The one thing for which they are suffering. Their sins. And on the cross of Calvary, 
For Jesus, it was exactly the same. He suffered once for sins, as a punishment, as a penalty for sins. And the first question that we're asking is, whose sins? And my answer is in two parts. First of all, he wasn't suffering for his own sins, for this very simple reason. He had none. Alone of all the people, the myriads of people who have ever lived in this planet, Jesus was entirely guiltless. It's there, for example, in the very next words. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There is this sharpest of contrast between the Christ who died and those for whom he died. They are unrighteous. He is righteous. The Apostle Peter touched on it earlier. Chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin. That's the consistent testimony of the New Testament. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he knew no sin. John in his first letter, in him there is no sin. Hebrews, describing him as holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. So it wasn't for his own sins that he was suffering on the cross of Calvary. It couldn't be because he had none. Which means that straight away we are seeing something utterly extraordinary when through Peter's eyes we gaze upon Calvary. The Lord is suffering for sins. All that he is enduring there is a punishment for sins. And they're not his own. Because he has none. Which brings us to the second part of the answer. He was suffering for the sins of others. The penalty that he was enduring was for sins of which others were guilty. It was the very thing prophesied so movingly many centuries beforehand by Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our transgressions, our iniquities, or again, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, for whose sins he is suffering, those who have gone astray, those who have turned everyone to his own way. Or to come back to Peter, here's another of the great statements in the New Testament about the sufferings of Calvary. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Our sins. Or here once more is the Apostle John. He's speaking, as Peter does here, about Jesus, the righteous one and says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, Christians differ in their understanding of what John means by that language of the whole world. 
What is important for us this morning is how they point away from any personal guilt on Christ's part to the guilt of others. He wasn't suffering for his own sins because he had none. His sufferings were for the sins of others. Our sins, says John to his readers, the sins of the whole world. Which makes Calvary an astonishing place, doesn't it? The sinless one dying for the sins of others. Let's ask our second question. How did it come about? How did he become, how did he come to be suffering for the sins of others? Well, we've already heard the answer from Isaiah 53. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it's that word laid that I want you to ponder for a moment. It can be translated meet on him or fall on him or rush on him. One writer puts it like this, the Lord caused them our iniquities to rush upon him so as to overwhelm in calamity as one is overwhelmed or overcome in battle. Another writer speaks about our sins lighting on him, whether as many burdens on one shoulder or as many shafts aimed at one common target. And it is the Lord who has done it. It is he who has laid this sin upon his beloved son. Let's take a closer look. And I want to make two points. First of all, having the sins of others laid upon him did not make Jesus sinful. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, says the Apostle Peter, and he did so without becoming sinful. He's a miner working a shift at the coal face. What is contact with coal going to do to his hands and his face and his clothes. It's going to blacken them, isn't it? Well, I think of a character in one of the English novelist Thomas Hardy's novels. He was a Redelman. Now, that was a new word for me. I'm sure it's a new word for you. Redelman, R-E-D-D-L-E-M-A-N. A Redelman a person whose vocation it was to supply farmers with redding or red ochre for marking sheep. And Thomas Hardy says he was completely red. Dye covered his clothes, the cap upon his head, his boots, his face, and his hands. It permeated him. So, the coal miner blackened through his contact with the coal and the redelman, reddened through his contact with this redding, this red ochre. And yet for all the blackness of the sins that were laid upon Jesus Christ, for all their redness, our sins as scarlet, 
His own holy soul remained clean, pure, white as snow. He never ceased to be the righteous one. It's only one way in which Jesus Christ could ever have become sinful. And that was actually by committing sin, which was the very thing that he never did. So having the sins of others laid upon him did not make him sinful, but in the second place, it did mean, it did mean that he was treated as the worst of sinners. We go back to what we were thinking about in our introduction, this immensely solemn matter of sinners suffering for their sins after death. When the day of judgment is at an end in hell, what is God doing? He is treating them like the sinners that they are. What about Jesus at Calvary? God is doing the very same thing. He is treating him as a sinner too, as if indeed he were the greatest sinner who has ever lived. Here is the great German reformer, Martin Luther. He bore the person of a sinner, of a thief. Not of one, but of all sinners and thieves. And all the prophets saw this, that Christ was to become the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer, etc., that has ever been anywhere in the world. Now, Jesus was not personally guilty of any of our sins. But when they were laid upon him, he consented to be treated as if he were guilty of all of them, as if he were the greatest sinner that has ever been, as if these sins were his own which once again makes Calvary the most amazing place that the sinless one should take the sins of others upon himself, counting them his own. So we have thought about whose sins Christ was suffering for. We thought about how he came to be suffering for them. And now a third question. What can we say about the suffering itself? Christ of Calvary suffering as a substitute for others. What can we say about that suffering? Well, there are many things that we can say. We can say, for example, that it was severe. And just how severe we will see God willing at our second service later on today. Christ in his death as we heard from the Apostle John, was the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation may not be familiar to you, but it's not a difficult word to understand. It simply means that the design of Calvary is to deliver men and women, young people, boys and girls, from the penalty that their sin deserves by enduring that penalty himself. He places himself in the hands of a justly angry God. And it means a suffering which for depth 
and severity we cannot ever gauge. And in particular, as we shall see, God willing, later in the day, the experience of being forsaken of God. So his suffering was severe. That's one thing that we can say. Another thing that we can say is that it was just. Had our sin not been laid upon Jesus Christ, his suffering and death would have been utterly unjust. For death is the wages of sin. It only ever strikes where someone has been guilty of sin and Christ had no sin. How then could it ever strike him? Or think about it like this. What is the one thing in all the world that provokes God to anger? It is sin. And Christ is without sin. How then can God justly punish him? Apart from our sin being laid upon him, such a thing was impossible. Death and the curse could not have touched Jesus Christ, would not have touched Jesus Christ had his sinlessness been the one consideration. But it was not. Our sin, humanity's sin, has come into the picture. It has been laid upon him. The Christ of Calvary is a sin-bearer. And that makes his suffering just. As just as the sufferings of a criminal in our own respective justice systems. As just as the final sufferings of those who reject him. Our sins are not simply the cause of Calvary. They are the vindication of Calvary. They are the vindication of God. He does not spare his own son, but delivers him up for us all, says Paul in Romans 8, because first of all, our sin was laid upon him. So it was severe. It was just. We can say a third thing about his suffering. It was necessary. And I'm thinking here about Hebrews and the principle that it lays down that without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. That's the rationale behind all the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Blood must be shed if guilt is to be cleansed. And it's not because God is vindictive. It's not because God is vengeful. It is because he is just. In every atoning sacrifice, we're seeing the very same thing. A God so holy that sin of necessity means death. Either for the sinner or for the creature upon whom his sin has been laid. Take that as a picture of Calvary. God has laid upon Jesus, his beloved son, the sins of sinners. And at Calvary, he's calling him to account for them. Why? Because he is too pure to just overlook sin, to brush it under the carpet, to just 
forgive it. There could be no forgiveness. There can be no forgiveness without the shedding of the Savior's blood. So it was severe, it was just, it was necessary, and then out into the sunlight, it was sufficient. Of sufficient intensity and sufficient duration to satisfy the justice of God enough. That's why at the end of it all, Jesus can cry out, it is finished. That's why on the third day, God raised him to life again. It's why death could not hold him. It's why he's able to save completely everyone who comes to God through him. It's why when he returns in power and in glory, it will not be to bear sins all over again, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. What Christ suffered will always be an unfathomable mystery to us. But this we can say, it was sufficient And it's all summed up for us here in a single word, the word once. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, once. It's all that it took. That was all that was needed. Once and for all, no need for it to be repeated. So we have been thinking this morning about Christ suffering once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, to end the separation, to heal the breach. And we thought about whose sins he was suffering for. And we thought about how he came to be suffering for them. And we thought about the suffering itself. Well, in the light of all of that, let me invite you in these closing moments to think about the following. First of all, heaven's verdict. What is sin in the eyes of so many of our fellow human beings? Perhaps in your own eyes. It's either nothing at all, because there's no God against whom to commit it, or it's so slight as to be easily overlooked. Either way, it's not something to worry about. Is that true? Look at the cross. The cross of Calvary is heaven's verdict on sin on the sinfulness of our sin, on the gravity of our sin, on the loathsomeness of our sin, on the damnableness of our sin. It tells us that it was a sheer impossibility for God to brush our sins under the carpet. If it took the suffering and death of the beloved Son of God in order to heal the breach... Sin cannot, it cannot be the small thing that so many people imagine it to be, that perhaps you imagine it to be. 
or think about it in Trinitarian terms. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean the God whom Christians worship, the God of the Bible, the God who is, is a trinity. One glorious God in three glorious persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's happening at Calvary? God is bearing the whole cost of our salvation. It's not contracted out. God the Son has taken our nature, and in our nature he's suffering a penalty at the hands of his Father, and the Holy Spirit is upholding him in his humanity as he suffers. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each having a part to play in making atonement, in effecting reconciliation, in bringing us back to God. We have the Father inflicting the penalty and the Son enduring the penalty and the Holy Spirit strengthening him to bear it all. Ask yourself, in the light of that astonishing transaction, how can sin be the small thing, the little thing, the thing of no consequence that so many imagine it to be? See at the cross of Calvary heaven's verdict on our sin. And then secondly, heaven's goal. Heaven's goal. What is heaven's goal? God lays his sin, the sins of sinners upon his beloved son that sin may not remain upon them so that instead it may be removed both from our records and from our hearts so that we might cease to be separated from God so that fellowship might be restored, the friendship that was lost at the beginning. John Brown of Edinburgh, way back in the 1800s, wrote a remarkably fine exposition of First Peter. And he devotes no fewer than 65 pages to his exposition of this first half of First Peter 3.18. I highly recommend it to you. And when he comes to the design of Christ's sufferings to bring us to God, here's how he divides it up. It is, he says, to bring men to the knowledge of God, to bring men to favor with God, to bring men to likeness to God, to bring men to fellowship with God. Heaven's goal. He suffers that we might not suffer. He dies that we might be delivered from death and instead be welcomed back to the knowledge of God and the favor of God and the likeness to God and the fellowship of God that we so wickedly and foolishly sinned away. And then, to heaven's goal, add this, heaven's desire. What is heaven's desire? 
that we should avail ourselves of the remedy that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ, his Son. Here's a doctor, and he has come to a particular place where a particular disease is wrecking havoc, and he's come with a remedy. What is his desire? That's just a faint picture of the desire of God. So good and kind and loving in spite of our wickedness. And he so orders things that we hear the gospel with its warnings and invitations and promises. And through that gospel, he himself appeals to us. And here we come to 2 Corinthians and the link that I said you would see between that and this. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. There's what was happening at the cross. God was reconciling the world to himself, or as Paul puts it a little later, he was making him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is active at Calvary, dealing with the sin that has separated us from him. But that's not the end of his activity. Paul goes on to speak about God entrusting him with a particular message, the message of reconciliation. What is his job as a preacher? His job is to tell it out. What God has done in order to bring us back into his family. That's the preacher's job today, to preach the cross and what the cross has achieved, to tell us, to tell you that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. But he's not to stop there. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What does the preaching of the gospel involve? It involves making an appeal. Be reconciled to God. My calling as a gospel preacher this morning is to urge you to seek God, to return to him in humble penitence, the God from whom your sin has separated you. And I am to do that and gladly do that so that the blessings of Christ's Calvary work might be yours. So that the friendship that you have not enjoyed all your days might be yours from this day forward to the furthest reaches of eternity. But we still haven't got to the top of this glorious mountain. Here's the marvelous summit. Here's where the sun really shines. It's not just the preacher's appeal. There is another voice being heard. And that is the voice of God himself. God making his appeal 
through his servants, we implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Which brings us full circle to where we started this morning. How eager God is to deal with the breach that we made in our relationship with him. How set his heart is on having us back. He takes the initiative. He bears the cost. And he makes the appeal. Everyone here this morning who is still separated from God, God himself appeals to you. He doesn't want you to go on in your sins, die in your sins. He doesn't want you to remain separated from him. And on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary, he appeals to you to come in penitence and look to him to bless you with salvation through Jesus, his son. Will you, will you not heed God's appeal? Think of what you will have. You will have God. God for whom you were made. And that restlessness stilled. And that hunger will cease. And the homesickness of the soul, it will all be over. Because you have come back to the God for whom you were made. That's what God offers through Jesus' Calvary work. That's what he appeals to you to come to him for. You will have him. And you will have him forever. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or stand up or do anything like that. But I do appeal to you in the quietness of your heart to pray to the God whose, whose ears are open and who can hear the faintest heart cry of the sinner. Don't harden your heart against this loving God who's gone to such a great length to bring eternal life to you. You come to him and through Jesus' blood he will gladly welcome you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful to you for our Lord Jesus Christ and for the cross of Calvary. We thank you that he took the place of sinners. And we thank you for that appeal from your heart. How astonishing. Lord, let there be no one here this morning, no young person, no boy or girl, no adult, no old person. Thank you that 
No one who comes will ever be turned away. All will be welcome. And Lord, hear your people's cries as they even name those who are near and dear to them and ask you to specially work in their heart. Make it so, we pray, for the eternal praise of our glorious God and Saviour Jesus. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.